0: John chapter fifteen, we're looking at verses one through eleven. John chapter fifteen, one through eleven. And as you are turning there, let me begin by saying that one of the reasons why the gospel of Jesus receives so much animosity in our day is because Christ's gospel is a message of absolutes. It's a gospel that offers black and white contrasts and juxtapositions. You can think of some of these contrasts and all of these are from Jesus' words from John's Gospel. Jesus says you either walk in light or you walk in darkness. You either believe the truth or you believe a lie. You're either forgiven of your sins or you are covered in your sins. You either love Christ or you hate Christ. You are either in Christ or you're of this world. Your father is either God or the devil. You're either under God's blessing or you're under God's wrath. Your destiny is either heaven or it's hell. You'll either experience eternal life or you will experience eternal death. Again, that's just a sampling of what Jesus has said throughout this gospel and what riles the world is the fact that the Bible maintains that everyone is in one side of those categories just listed. There are no in-betweens. There are no gray areas. Christ's gospel is an either or gospel. And that does not bode well for us in our pluralistic, inclusive world that loves its shades of gray and prizes a person's individual right to choose their own truth. A gospel of distinguishing contrasts and objective either ors is just too jarring for our world to accept. This is why, look at verse 19, this is why Jesus will warn his apostles and every believer who follows that the world will hate everyone who holds this either-or gospel. Verse 19, if you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, because of this, the world hates you. That's that either-or. You're either of the world, you're not of the world. So if we affirmed the world's inclusiveness, the world would love us. If we supported the world's values, the world would welcome us. If we accepted the world's tolerance, the world would accept us with open arms. Here's the problem, though. We can't do that. We can't do that because that's not Christ's gospel. Christ's gospel is not gray. It's black and white. It's truth or error. It's heaven or hell. It's Christ or Satan. It's eternal Life or eternal death. Again, there's no in between. And that's what we've begun to see in verses 1 through 11. These gospel contrasts, you see it, the true and the false that Jesus makes clear here. This is a story, picture form, a story of a vine that produces fruitful branches. But it's also a story of another vine, a false vine that produces fruitless branches. Branches that are thrown into the fire and burned. Again, there's no in between. Now remember what Jesus is doing here. He's preparing his apostles for what is in store for them the moment he leaves them. It's just minutes away, moments away. This is early Friday morning. Jesus will be betrayed very, very soon. And specifically, Jesus is warning these men of two main threats that are coming their way. Again, verse 19, we just saw it. One of those threats is gospel persecution. The world will hate you. It's one of those threats. But by far, the more significant threat of the two is that first warning that Jesus gives in verses one through 11. That's the threat of gospel deception gospel deception, that there will be false gospels that will flood this world until Christ returns in glory. It's a threat these 11 apostles will experience firsthand when they see Judas, the religious leaders, the Roman guards, when they see them arrive on the scene. The threat is this, will they remain faithful to Christ? Will they cling to Christ, use Jesus' words, in these first 11 verses, will they abide in Christ or will they let Christ go, like Judas did? Will they attach themselves to the fruitless vine, the false gospel that first century Judaism had become? So that's how we're unpacking the story here by contrasting the true vine from the multitude of false vines contrast between the only gospel that saves and this many small G gospels that damn. Again, it's profound truth. It's in story form. Let's read through verse 11. starting in verse one. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the the vine, you are the branches. He abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them in to the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So if you've been here for the last few weeks before I was rudely interrupted last time, you know there are two movements, two movements in this parable. The first we've entitled the false gospel warned. The false gospel warns. And Jesus gives three characteristics of every false gospel. We saw those. False gospels are Christless gospels. Verse one is clear. I am, only I am the true vine. Verse five, I am the true vine. That is to say there's no other vine planted by God. There's no other savior from sin sent from heaven by God to earth. And thus any gospel that is Christless, vineless, is a false, damning gospel. We saw also that false gospels are commitmentless gospels. That is to say only those who only profess Jesus, faith in Jesus with their mouth, but do not commit their lives to him and remain in him, abide in him. They're just superficially attached like Judas, They have only one fate. Look at verse two. They're taken away by the father, taken away. Leads into a third warning Jesus gives. And that is that false gospels are fruitless gospels. Fruitless gospels where there's no fruit, there's no true faith. Barren faith is damning faith. Verse two, again, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the gardener, takes away. Verse six tells us where the gardener takes the branches. The branch is thrown away and cast into the fire and they are burned. It's a reference to eternal hell. And so that's the story, negative side, negative side. There's only one vine planted by God, only one savior from sin, and to have God's saving sap flow through you, you must be attached to his vine, his son, through a real and abiding faith, persevering faith, and the proof of that attachment, the proof of that, is a life of fruitfulness to the glory of your savior. Look at verse nine. When you bear much fruit, notice, when you bear much fruit, you prove, you put on display, you showcase, that you are truly Christ's disciples. And any other gospel that teaches otherwise, false gospel. So That's the first movement that we've looked at. Let's look to the positive side now, the positive side of the story, the second movement. And this is the true gospel pictured. The true gospel pictured. And what we see here are not warnings but promises. Blessings that Jesus gives to all who abide in him. Vows and pledges for every branch attached to the true vine. Every believer who has come to Christ in abiding, saving faith. You call these reasons to not let go of Jesus. Again, verse 19 will be clear. Persecution is coming. Hatred is coming. Don't let go. Abide, remain And there's six of these salvation promises, six of them that we can see in this parable. They are all staggering, amazing promises. We're gonna look at the first two this morning, first two. Let's begin with the first promise, promise number one. Promise number one, for all who abide in Christ, in true saving faith, Christ promises to sever, to sever your attachment to this fallen world. The first promise Jesus makes here, he will sever your attachment to this fallen world and this is needed. This is needed. So look at verse 3. Verse 3, you speaking to the apostles, not Judas, what follows is just for the true vines or the true branches. You are already clean. You're already clean. Now, if you remember what took place earlier this night, you know that Jesus is repeating himself in a way from chapter 13. Look back to chapter 13 in verse 10. Jesus was washing his apostles' feet and he promised them in verse 10, he said to them, he who has bathed, notice now, is completely clean. Our word clean, there's the same word used in John 15. And then he makes this promise very personal, you are clean, same word, you're spiritually bathed. He then adds, not all of you, why? Because Judas is there. But some of you, those 11, you're clean, you're bathed. And the point here, the point here is that Jesus is telling them they've been forgiven. They've been cleansed spiritually. They're recipients of that new covenant promise. When the spirit will sprinkle clean water on you. It's Ezekiel 36. You'll be sprinkled with clean water. Again, bathing, washing imagery. The dirt of sin taken away. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So chapter 13, Jesus is making the promise of atonement. Your sin will be paid for. It's making the promise of sacrifice. There will be a substitute that stands in your stead. It's making a promise of a divine washing of our heart. And there's a wonderful promise of forgiveness of sin. But now look at John 15. Though Jesus uses the same word, that's not the same promise Jesus is giving, it's a different promise here in John 15. It's a different gospel blessing. Jesus is not promising a cleansing, soothing bath. No, this is the promise of a painful, yet necessary pruning. Again, verse three, the same word clean, but the meaning here, you could translate it as prune, or cut, or chop. Look up to verse two. You see at the very end it says he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. He prunes the same word as clean there in verse three. This is a pruning, a cutting, a clipping. So this is the pruning, the severing, referring to that initial cut of the gardener that he must make before a branch can be grafted into a new vine. So let's put this in the spiritual realm. What is this promise? It is this, God the Father will sever his children from this fallen world. He will sever us from all of its lusts, from its sinful power, from its coming judgment. Colossians one, same idea, theme, different imagery. The promise in Colossians 1:13 is this that the Father will rescue us. Same idea, cut us from the domain, the power, the dominion of darkness, will be severed from this world. The chains of Satan will be broken. Second Peter, same idea, again, different imagery. The Father will cause us to escape. The corruption that is in the world by lust to deliver us, cause us to escape. So pruning here, the image that Jesus uses, and you remember why he's using this imagery, the vine in the temple signifying Israel in the Old Testament. But the pruning here is a physical picture of what the Spirit does when he regenerates us. He severs every attachment to this world we once had. He severs that. He removes our heart of stone. He removes that heart that once loved the world and the things of the world. The heart that was driven by the lusts of this world. And he takes out that heart and he places a new heart within us that loves him, longs to obey him. And again, though, the same word, clean, prune, is used in John 13 and 15. It's promises, but this is not that soothing bath. This is here a picture of pain, of pain. It's a necessary severing that must take place if we are going to be right with God. There is a necessary chopping and amputating from what we were once attached to and what what we once lived for this is the repentance side of saving faith this is the deny yourself side when we count the cost of following Christ and then reject all of this world's values and virtues and then pick up that painful cross to follow our savior Now just think how painful, how painful this initial cutting was for these apostles, these apostles here. They've been ostracized from the synagogues. It's the pain of being removed from the hub of everyday life. They've been rejected by the religious leaders of the land. They will soon be beaten by the religious leaders in Acts. Be martyred, everyone's martyred except for John. But again, this is what Jesus has said earlier on in his ministry in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said this, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. He's the prince of peace. But he says, do not think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I'm the prince of peace. I'll bring peace with God, but not peace with everybody. I've come to bring a sword. The pruning shears, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. I've come in some cases to sever that all because of the gospel. I've come to bring a sword. These apostles will experience that firsthand. Again, we can expand that out. This will show itself in different ways for us. But the image is pain, it's a cutting. But the promise here is that the pain will be worth the yield. The pain will be worth the yield because you will be tended and cared for by the gardener. So the world will reject you. The gardener will care for you and love you. You'll be attached to the only life Giving vine that God has planted. You'll be spared from verse six, that fate. You'll be spared. You won't be thrown into the burning garbage dump. I think there's a contrast here, too. John 14, verse one In my father's house are many dwelling places. Your place is in my father's house, not the garbage dump. You will be taken. care. It is painful, but you will be cared for. You'll be tended by the gardener. Now notice a few observations here. First of all, this initial cutting, pruning, it's a sovereign work of the gardener. It's the sovereign work of the gardener. Vines do not cut themselves away from the initial plant. Vines don't do that. Vines do not graft themselves in, or the branch graft itself in to the new plant. No, this cutting, this regeneration is the gardener's work alone. It's a work of grace and of mercy. But notice now, also from the text here, notice the means, the means the Father uses to make this initial cut this initial severing from the world. Finish verse three. You are already clean, pruned, cut, because, here's the means, because of the word which I have spoken to you. So what clips sinners from the dead and barren vines of this world? What does God use to take out our old hearts and give us a new heart? Jesus says here it's his word, it's his gospel. Paul in Romans one, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This is the message of Christ's person. This is why the world hates us because we hold fast to the person of Jesus, that he is the eternal son of God. He's come and taken upon himself human flesh the work of Christ. He's come from heaven to earth. He's lived on our behalf. He's lived the perfect life we could not live. He's died the death for sin we could not die. He's defeated an enemy we could not defeat. He'll return in great glory to usher in a kingdom we could not build. It's the exclusivity of Christ. This is what changes hearts. We must remember that because again, we've looked at this in the last few weeks. We live in an inclusive world. We cannot offer an inclusive gospel. This is exclusivity in Jesus. That's what changes the heart. It's that word of Christ that the spirit uses in his own timing to sever sinners from the poisonous plants of this world. All those false gospels filled with false promises that this world offers. Look at verse 19 again. It's the severing idea, you are not of the world. Understand who we are in Christ attached to the vine. You are not of the world. You have different values. You've been cut away. You've been clipped. You have different goals, you have a different savior, you have a different future. Everything's changed. And this is so essential to take place because of what John writes in 1 John chapter 2 it'll be on the screen. This one he writes, if anyone loves the world, if anyone is attached to the poisonous vines of this world, The love of the Father is not in him. The saving sap of the Son does not flow through him. It's a problem, why? Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, that's who we were. Those were our lusts, driven by that. Those are not from the Father, but they're from the world. Verse 17, the world is passing away. All of those barren branches of the world will one day be disposed of. They're passing away, they'll be burned. And also it's lust, but but the one who does the will of God. The branch attached to the vine, the fruitful one, that one and only that one will live forever. If we're not severed from the world, that is our end. We will pass away. But when he severs us from this world, he changes our heart. Everything's different. This is the first promise we see here of Christ's gospel. Promise number one, through Christ's gospel and only Christ's gospel. Our sinners severed from the barrenness and the futility, and the coming judgment of this world. And they're grafted into the saving vine planted by the Father. And through that sap flowing to us, through Christ, we're given all the blessings of salvation, all the blessings. Forgiveness of sin, chapter 13, declaration of righteousness to our account, adoption into God's family, the hope of eternal life, the giving of the Spirit, a thousand others. Just make the list. When you contrast that with the other gospels, what other gospel can can offer that? What other gospel gives those promises, those blessings? There's a second promise here, second promise. Promise number two that we see in the story, Christ promises to prune us to fulfill the very reason we were created. He promises to prune us to fulfill the very reason we were created. So the Westminster Confession of Faith has put it this way, they've asked a question. Here's the question, question number one. What is the chief end of man? Let's ask the question, what is the chief end of man? Make it personal, and how would you answer that? What is the purpose of your life? overarching purpose. What is the purpose of your life? Put it this way. Why did God create you? And there are 10,000 answers you could offer. The problem is there's only one right answer. Here's the right answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So that's why we've been created, that's our purpose, that's our goal, our calling, to display the glory of God, to point to him, to showcase his grace, for all worship to be directed to him, for him to be exalted and honored and praised and prized and loved and enjoyed. That's why we've been created, That's why you're here on this planet. So there's no higher calling in life, none. And when you pursue other goals, other purposes, primarily, those will leave you empty and hollow. They can't satisfy. If we want to use Jesus' word picture here, anything less then glorifying God and enjoying Him forever will leave us as a lifeless, withering branch. It's a state in which every sinner enters this world. And yet, what does Christ promise that His Father will do for all who abide in Him? Not only will He sever us from the barrenness, futility, judgment, of this world, it's that initial pruning, but now look at verse two. Verse two, the promise is that he will regularly trim us as much as necessary so that we will become fruitful for the glory of our Savior. Finish verse two, as opposed to the fruitless branches that the gardener takes away and throws into the fire and are burned. Again, eternal hell, verse two, every branch that bears fruit, every branch that is truly attached to the vine, he, the gardener, he prunes it. It's present tense, consistently cuts it. Clips it, why? So that it may, what, bear more fruit. And why is this fruit bearing necessary? Verse eight, because my father is glorified by this. By what, Jesus? That you bear much fruit. And it's fruit that can only be produced if the gardener works on us. Now, I have no problem stepping into the biblical world in explaining this. Now I have to step into the master gardeners world out there. So for all the master gardeners, I apologize if I get some of this wrong. But what I've read and YouTubed, that's dangerous. Pruning is the most important job the gardener has. I got an amen, I guess I'm right. Because it's the necessary process of removing anything, mark it, Anything that would hinder the fruit producing capabilities of the branch. And as the gardeners out there know, not just anyone can prune. So my wife, This is why my wife watches 50 YouTube videos of how to prune, watches, makes me watch all of them with her, and then calls up a friend and says, can you prune the branch for me? <laughs> not anyone can do it. Pruning needs to be done carefully. One wrong cut could reduce a branch's fruit production in half. Pruning needs to be done regularly to ensure even weight distribution, the proper growth of the plant. Pruning requires the right blade, the right skill, the right timing. It requires the right technique, depends on the plant. Sometimes branches need to be, the official term is pinched, so that the branch does not grow too quickly grows too quickly, it's unable to withstand the wind, the rain. Sometimes branches need to be topped. Take out one to two feet of the branch so the entire branch isn't lost. Sometimes the plant needs to be thinned out so that the quality of the fruit increases. Sometimes, usually in the fall, winter, the branch needs to be aggressively cut back. Get it ready for the following season's yield. And not only is the gardener the one responsible for making these decisions, and he must, depending on the plant, timing, all of that, but no fruit-producing branch is exempt. No branch gets the pass. It's agricultural 101. Well, you can see where Jesus is going here, right? If we're a branch, if we're attached to the vine, Jesus is promising that the master gardener, his father, again will not only cut us from the barrenness and judgment of this world and graft us into the sun, initially, but he will also continue to care for us by pruning us and cutting us and clipping us in order to maximize our fruit bearing lives. There are times that he will pinch us top us, cut us, thin us, so that we will bear fruit for his glory, so that we will fulfill the very reason we were created. My Father is glorified by this when you bear much fruit. And we can just bring some application here. Jesus And the Father does this in a variety of ways. Sometimes he will use the sharp blade of his word to convict us of our sin. The sharp blade of his word. It's Hebrews four. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. The Word is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He will slice us, reveal us. He'll expose our sinful loves. He'll reveal our godless desires through the Word. At other times, the Lord will use the sharp edges of trial and loss and sorrow to shear away our love for this fallen world. Think of James 1. J.C. Ryle has put it this way, trial, to speak plainly, is the instrument by which our Father in heaven makes Christians more holy. By trial, he weans them from the world, draws them to Christ, drives them to the Bible in prayer, shows them their own hearts, and makes them humble. This is the process by which he purges, prunes them. and makes them more fruitful, hardly, Do we find an eminent saint, either in the Old Testament or the New, who is not purified by suffering? And like his master, a man of sorrows. Our trials are not meant to do us harm, but good. Fruit is the thing that our master desires to see in us. Watch this. And he will not spare the pruning knife if he sees we need it. In the last day, we shall see that it was all done well. That's how much our Father cares for us. Sometimes the master gardener will use unbelievers to shear us for greater obedience, unbelievers. Think of Psalm 119. Psalm 119.67, we read this before I was afflicted. What affliction? Well, the affliction here comes from the unbelievers in this passage, those who forged a lie against me in verse 69. So the affliction here that the psalmist is talking about is the discrediting of his reputation, the assassination of his character, And yet, what does he say? Before that took place, I went astray. I found my identity in me, in myself. I prided myself in how others viewed me. But now, after that affliction, but now I keep your word. Now I treasure your word. Now I find my identity in you. To which the Psalmist adds in verse 71. It is good, that's an amazing statement. It is good, joyful, valuable. It is good for me that I was afflicted. I see the good in it, I see your love and your care. It was good that I could not defend myself from false accusations, why? Because through all of this, I learned your statutes. I learned obedience when it hurt. I learned forgiveness in the midst of pain. Quite often the Lord will bring unbelievers, affliction through unbelievers and he will use them in his hands to prune us to greater humility. Other times the Lord will use his own people to do this. His own people to clip away our fruitless characteristics. Those who love us and care for us, who notice sinfulness within us, They're not afraid to bring that to our attention. We see that in Matthew 18. If a brother sins against you, show him, go to him. Think of Nathan who told David, you are the man pruning shears. It's a pain of confrontation. It yields though the fruit of repentance. Other times, Other times, the Lord will use unanswered prayer to prune us, when he says no to prayers. Think of Paul, who implored the Lord three times, three times, and what does the Lord say? He said no to Paul, no. I'll not answer your prayer in that way. No, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. That's painful, we've been there, haven't we? We pray, we plead, we ask, and the Lord says no. It's the pruning shears of the gardener. All of this, all of this, the writer of Hebrews, all of it, the writer calls this the pruning work of the Lord. He calls it discipline, discipline. And do not translate discipline as punishment Not what that word means. No, discipline is purposeful training, molding, growing, shaping, maturing. And he does all of this. He prunes us. He disciplines us. He cuts us. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. It's Hebrews 12. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Loving fathers discipline their children. But if you are without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're not being pruned by the gardener, you're not a true branch. Same idea, different imagery. If you're not being trained to greater holiness by the father, you're not a son. Now notice this, he disciplines us, prunes us, cuts us for our good. Why? So that we may share his holiness. That's the direction, that's the goal. It is true, verse 11, all discipline, all pruning for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. It goes back to the the pain idea. Yet, Yet, to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields, here's the imagery, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's needed. Warren Worsby has put it this way, your heavenly father is never nearer to you than when he is pruning you. Sometimes he cuts away the dead wood that might cause trouble, but often he cuts off the living tissue that is robbing you of spiritual vigor. Yes, pruning hurts, but it also helps. We may not enjoy it, but we need it. It's a gospel promise. Each pruning cut, painful, yet necessary. It's an act of kindness a severing cut of grace from the master gardener, listen, who never errs in his work. He never errs. And he will always do what it takes so that we will fulfill the very reason we were created by him, to bring forth. Now watch, watch the progression. To bring forth, back to chapter 15. To bring forth not only fruit, but now notice the end of verse two. More fruit. Fruit, more fruit, and then the middle of verse five, much fruit. That's how much the gardener cares for us. His pruning work is never done. Let me quote another commentator, he writes this, if you are connected to the vine, God is going to do whatever it takes to cause you to bear fruit, just let it sink in. He'll do whatever it takes for you to bear fruit. He is not content to let you stay on the vine bearing little fruit. God is ruthlessly determined to shape you into something much better and more beautiful than you are right now. He is determined to make you more like his son, Jesus. The only way that will happen is through cutting away the parts that are dying so you can grow more and more healthy. God's commitment to your fruit bearing is greater than your commitment to comfort. Say it again, God's commitment to your fruit bearing is greater than your commitment to comfort. God will do whatever it takes for you to bear fruit. Again, that is how much the gardener loves us and cares for us. And each fruit produced then is to the glory of our Savior's grace and mercy the glory of his power to transform us, the glory of his sovereignty to shatter sin's chains that once held us, the glory of his love to bring us into his family, we put on display the glory of God. We enjoy him, we glory in him. That's the second promise Jesus offers here of his gospel, he promises to prune us to fulfill the very purpose we were created. Which leads into promise number three, we'll pick it up here next week. Promise number three, Christ promises to graft us to himself forever. He promises to graft us to himself forever. This is eternal security, this is assurance. We will not be lost, not be burned, discarded, just look at verse four quickly. Abide in me, abide in me for all who come to Christ in saving faith, every branch, grafted in God's vine. Here's the promise, abide in me and I will what? I in you, I will remain in you, I will abide in you. When, when you're grafted into me, it's amazing. When you're grafted into me, I'm grafted into you. That's how close we are, that's the connection and it cannot be severed. Well, let's pray. Father, you have given us a, really a beautiful gospel filled with amazing promises. And, and they are promises that we don't often think on. Cause us to be thankful for your pruning work. Cause us, Lord, to see things in the proper perspective from your vantage point, that indeed our chief end would be to produce fruit for the glory of your name. And as we remember the Lord's table right now, humble us. Let us remember the tremendous cost and sacrifice involved so that we would have these gospel promises from our Savior. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.